Welcome back, everyone, to the re-education. The topic of today's monologue is the lynching that helped create the Anti-Defamation League and what the injustice to Leo Frank more than a century ago tells us about anti-Semitism today in America. I then discuss the modern Anti-Defamation League, what it is in 2022, with my guest, the brilliant polymath journalist and critic, Leo Leibowitz. You can find his work at Tablet. I highly recommend it. right outside of Mr. Frank's office. And I've never seen anything wrong to be going on in there. He's always been a perfect gentleman to me. And I believe he's just as innocent as the angels in heaven. What about Jim Conley? Would you say he's as innocent as the angels in heaven? No, sir. I'd say he's a liar. Objection! Jim Conley is not on trial here. Sustained. Would you believe him under oath, his hand on the Bible? I don't reckon that book would mean much to Jim Conley. That was a compelling courtroom scene from the 1988 movie, The Murder of Mary Fagan. It's about the strangulation of a 13-year-old girl in 1913 at the National Pencil Factory in Atlanta, Georgia, and the trial of a Jewish man falsely accused of this gruesome murder named Leo Frank. I choose today to discuss Leo Frank because his ordeal is a way into understanding many themes that have emerged in light of the recent anti-Semitism scandals in our culture and the danger that populist movements pose to the Jewish people. Make no mistake, the position of Jews in America today is exponentially better than what Jews faced in Europe throughout most of European history, and certainly the position and status of Jews in America before World War I, and particularly in the American South. Nonetheless, the anti-Semitism that one encounters today in 2022 is a distant and distorted mirror of a version of the hatred that was stirred in the trial of Leo Frank nearly 110 years ago. So let's start with one of the most obvious echoes. Leo Frank's trial and the national campaign for his innocence marks the inception of the Anti-Defamation League as really a national organization. The ADL was technically founded before the Leo Frank trial. But it was that trial where the ADL emerged as a real national organization that wielded significant kind of political influence. Today, the ADL plays a powerful role in our culture. It can sort of be the arbiter of what is and what is not anti-Semitic. The ADL works closely with social media companies over what posts should be throttled, what posts should be disappeared. Most recently, the Anti-Defamation League joined with other social justice organizations to urge advertisers to leave Twitter after Elon Musk purchased the company and made it public. Abe Foxman, the ADL's former national director and a former guest of the re-education, I think go back to episode six on apologies, wrote in 2013 on the centennial of the Leo Frank trial that the entire affair went to sort of prove how the libels of Europe could resurface in America when it came to the Jewish people. I'm quoting here, the trial and lynching demonstrated that America carried some of the historic stereotypes and conspiracy theories about Jews that had characterized European life for centuries. The blood libel charge, the idea that Jews murdered Christian children to use their blood for ritual purposes, was rare in America. But a related theme of a Jewish predator attacking a young Christian female surfaced very much in the Frank trial. End of quote. Mm-hmm. 
Little Mary Fagan left her home one day. She went to the pencil factory to get her weekly pay. Left her home at 11, kissed her mother goodbye. Not one time did the poor girl think she was going to die. Now, there's no mistake. The campaign in Atlanta ginned up against Leo Frank relied on some of the ugliest stereotypes about money Jews manipulating politics and finance. We can hear in the background right now a popular song at the time of the killing of Mary Fagan, and it goes to show that what you see in this particular kind of phenomenon in 1913, 1914, 1915 was something that really permeated the national culture. And I guess the thing that I would compare it to for those who are old enough listening to this podcast would be the O.J. Simpson trial in the 1990s, which just captivated the entire country, kind of created the idea of court television. And it was a huge national story. And that's why it's a cultural reference point to this day, you know, more than 25 years later. So the anti-Semitism that burned through Georgia in this period between 1913 and 1915 was stoked by a silver-tongued populist named Thomas Watson. His newspaper, The Jeffersonian, took up the cause of the working class in a state that was just beginning to become industrialized at the dawn of the 20th century. Watson fanned these passions about the murder of Mary Fagan, but we should note that he was also calling attention to the inequities and the awful conditions for most working people in this period. And while there's nothing comparing to the kind of horrific strangulation of Mary Fagan, which we'll get to later in the monologue. You know, it should be noted that it's a crime that a 13-year-old girl would even have to go to work in a pencil factory instead of attending the eighth grade. In that context, the old caricature of sort of the Jewish outsider coming in to exploit the native children was a potent myth. And it was a potent myth in part because there really was an influx, and by the way, perfectly legitimate in a free country, in a free capitalist society, but there was an influx of what Southerners would at the time call carpetbaggers. People came from the North seeking to take advantage of this sort of new period of industrialization and looking to try to make their fortune in these new markets. I'm not excusing in any way the anti-Semitism against Leo Frank. What I am saying is that one of the reasons why this is potent is because there is a sliver of it that is based on something that's true, and we should never forget that. Anyway, this mix of populism and the crude bigotries made Watson a politically powerful figure in Georgian politics for the first two decades of the 20th century. And what I want to play here is a wonderful clip. It's from a television series based on the book Profiles and Carriage. Now, it says on this book that the author of this is former President John F. Kennedy when he wrote when he was a senator. I can tell you definitively, John F. Kennedy did not write this book, even though he won a Pulitzer Prize for it. Anyway, one of those profiles in this book was of Governor John Marshall Slayton of Georgia, and he ended up commuting Leo Frank's death penalty to life in prison at the very last moment in 1915. And in doing that, John Marshall Slayton effectively ended his own political career because he spared the life of a man so many Georgians wanted dead. So in this scene, Watson is meeting with the governor who is played by the great Walter Matthau. And in this scene, he reminds the governor of what he is able to do with his newspaper to his enemies. But governor, even if I can't support anybody, I can't oppose 
And when I oppose, my people oppose. Thousands of them. Farmers with empty bellies got more votes in the family than shoes. When they read in my paper that a man is a scallywag, a limberback, a tool of the interest ought to be run out of public life. They run him out. They vote him out. I'm not gonna debate the extent of your power with a mob. That's good. Just as long as you understand that it exists. Just as long as you understand that it can put you in the Senate. Or it can destroy you. Now, just as bigots like Thomas Watson were anathematizing Leo Frank, another campaign emerged to clear his name. And that's really where the ADL kind of emerges in this story. Because the ADL as an organization, but also, you know, sort of managed to appeal to many of the national newspapers. And the most important of those national newspapers is the New York Times, which crusaded against the Georgian justice system that would falsely accuse a man of a crime he did not commit, and a Jewish man at that. And it's important here to note that the New York Times has been published now for more than a century by a, a Jewish family, the Oaks Solchberger at the time. The publisher of the paper was Adolf Oaks. And the prominence of the New York Times kind of putting its you know, reputation and, and making this a big deal really stands out because what we know is that this really was the last time that the New York Times decided to make a campaign on behalf of a specifically Jewish cause. It's worth comparing the role that the New York Times played in the Leo Frank trial versus its often lax and shamefully unfocused coverage of the rise of Nazis in Germany and the subsequent Holocaust. And here it's worth pointing out that there's a great book by Laura Leff called Buried by the Times, the Holocaust and America's Most Important Newspaper, in which she really kind of digs deep into the New York Times coverage of the Holocaust during World War II. And what she found was that while there were 1,200 stories that the Times ran in this period about the Holocaust, only 26 of 24,000 made it to the front page. And as anybody knows who's been in the newspaper business as I have, the placement of the story is the way for the newspaper to tell you how important it was. And there's a famous anecdote where a story about the governor's tennis shoes showing up, I guess, you know, like much later on in some sewage or drain ditch don't don't hold me accountable but it's a kind of a trivial fluffy story was placed more prominently on the front page while there was a dispatch from europe about the death camps so it's important to sort of note the contrast here that you know a generation before the new york times was very much kind of leading the charge to exonerate leo frank but by the time the holocaust came around it it, it was shamefully silent or, or not vocal enough okay now one of the great things about diving into the past, as far as I'm concerned, is that sooner or later you are bound to find paradox. And from our contemporary focus, from our contemporary perspective, the distant mirror into the past looks strange because Leo Frank was the first person in Georgia history to be convicted on the testimony of a black man. So in the middle of an injustice against a Jew, so grave that it helped create the Anti-Defamation League, a glimmer of progress is found in some of the worst days, you could say in some of the worst years of Jim Crow and segregation in the South. And making this all the more sinister is that later investigations showed that the witness who testified against Leo Frank, a guy by the name of Mike Conley, was almost certainly the culprit 
in the murder of Mary Fagan. Conley, who was a journalist, was very much deeply involved in all of this, and I'll get into that in a little bit. No, but anyway, in other words, the wrongful conviction of a Jew spared the righteous conviction of a black man. Here it's worth dwelling on a detail of the trial that stands out. Conley's own lawyer, many years later, acknowledged that the story that Conley told in court, that he wrote down a note on Mary Fagan's body that was dictated by Leo Frank, was in fact false. Contrary to that testimony in the trial, it is later determined by his own lawyer that Conley had not only written that note by himself, but he had claimed in the trial that he was barely literate. He was, in fact, literate, and that the language that he used was language that he had used in other circumstances where he had other kind of correspondence that, that he had found later on. And I should say there's another detail here that clears Leo Frank, which is that his office assistant, who was at the time a, a kind of a, an adolescent, you know, fast forward several decades, at the end of his life, his office assistant told the Tennessean newspaper that he saw Conley carrying Fagan's body, the janitor carrying the body after she was killed. But he never said this to the police and he never said it to the court. That prompted the Tennessean to write an enormous story, I think in 1982 or 1983, basically saying that, you know, new evidence has emerged and Leo Frank is 100% innocent here. Now, there were lots of people, as I've already pointed out, who really believed that Leo Frank was innocent at the time and still do. But we should also say there are people today that also think that Leo Frank was guilty. And that includes the great-grandniece of Mary Fagan. Here is a news interview with her from a couple of years ago. It's hard to imagine anyone more passionate about the rape and strangulation of little Mary Fagan than her great-niece, Mary Fagan Keene. Leo Frank was a sexual pervert and that he raped her and murdered her. The jury found Frank guilty in 1913. Neat files in her home today hold reminders that many women testified against Frank because of his inappropriate sexual behavior toward them. And I should add that there are fringe anti-Semitic groups that are online and have sought to pollute search engines with misleading articles and also whole websites that make the dubious claim that, in fact, Leo Frank was guilty. Anyway, I should say, these are very small exceptions to a near-unanimous consensus among scholars and journalists who have reinvestigated this case that Leo Frank did not murder Mary Fagan, full stop. Now, at the time, one person who really counted, who believed that Leo Frank did not murder Mary Fagan was, as we said earlier, Governor John Marshall Slayton. His inclusion in Profiles in Carriage was justified in a sense because he did not dodge the politically unpopular decision. He addressed it straight on. He reviewed the appeal for clemency at the end of his term and determined that the trial against Leo Frank was a travesty, and he commuted his sentence down to life in prison. Now, I should say that I don't want to give Governor Slayton too much credit. If he believed that Frank was innocent, he should have freed him entirely. Also, it should be said, this is a governor who is serving in the state house, you know, during an incredibly unjust time in, in the history of the state. And there were plenty of black Georgians who were unjustly convicted by the state's courts. And there's no evidence that Slayton lifted a finger for them. There were also black people who were lynched. We'll get to that in a little bit. And there's no evidence that Slayton did much on that. So I want to credit him for doing something that any democratically elected leader is the hardest thing for them to do, which is to buck the passions to, you know, to oppose the passions of a majority 
to do what the elected leader believes is right. That is what we want all of our elected leaders to, to do, I think. But at the same time, I mean, he is the governor of a state at a time of horrific segregation and a government that is, in fact, a kind of white supremacist regime. All right. So after Frank's life was spared the state execution, what happens next is truly horrendous. While waiting in a Georgia jail after his execution was stayed, a lynch mob arrived and kidnapped him and took him to Marietta, Georgia, which is the hometown of Mary Fagan, and then strung him up from an oak tree. Sometimes people say these kinds of lynchings, which were far more frequent, we should make very clear for black people at the time in the South than for Jews or other whites, although Jews and whites were lynched. Anyway, sometimes these lynchings are described as a vigilante or extra legal activity because the lynchings, the executions are not done on the authority of an actual court. But I have to say to look at it that way is not exactly right because the men responsible for the murder of Leo Frank really were pillars, played important roles in the state itself. And here is Steve Oney, who is superb book, And the Dead Shall Rise, is probably the most complete account of the Leo Frank affair. Took him 15 years, I think, to write it. Anyway, here is Steve Oney in 2003 explaining who comprised this lynch party. The lynching was conceived in Marietta, but it was run through the Georgia legislature. One of the crime's architects, a legislator named John Tucker Dorsey, was chairman of that of the body's prison subcommittee. In that position, he was able to wield both the stick and the carrot over the board that administered the Milledgeville prison. The stick was blamed for a typhus outbreak that had occurred early in 1915. The carrot was $30,000 in appropriations if Frank's abduction went off without a hitch. Shortly before the lynching, the threat of the typhus investigation went away. A month after the lynching, money from the state's coffers flowed and work on a new addition to the prison began. Simply put, the state of Georgia was in this instance in the lynching business. Now, a fascinating footnote to all of this is that many of the participants in that lynch mob that killed Leo Frank would only a few weeks later form in secret the first chapter of what some historians would call the new Ku Klux Klan. Because during the Reconstruction period, there was, of course, the Ku Klux Klan, but they were you know, largely beaten by the northern forces that were in the South during that period. After the northern forces lead, after the end of Reconstruction, is when we see the rise of the Klan again. And, and you know, it should be noted that the, the new Klan, as it were, really becomes a menace in America in the late 19-teens, the 1920s, of course, 1930s. And you could say it sort of starts after this horrific lynching of Leo Frank, and at least many of the people who were involved in that horrific crime go on to sort of form the first chapter of what we call the new KKK. It is a bitter bookend to the entire story, is it not? That the trial of Leo Frank helps to bring into national prominence the ADL, and after the ADL and others succeed in persuading the governor of that Frank did not deserve to be executed by the state, a lynch mob does that instead, and the people in that lynch mob end up forming the modern KKK. So what does the story tell us today about anti-Semitism, about the Anti-Defamation League? Well, I think it tells us that it was not always true that American Jews enjoy the same protections and opportunities as other Americans. Today, that is not the case. Of course, you know, American Jews today are really don't face any kind of systemic 
discrimination or prejudice that the Jews who lived in the Pale of Settlement in Europe, or for that matter, blacks who lived in the Jim Crow South would face. So it's worth acknowledging the progress that has been made. The threat to Jews in America today is not from the local government or state government or even the federal government. It is, and we should note this, the FBI director regularly addresses the ADL's national convention. The ADL's national director, and today Jonathan Greenblatt, helps guide social media companies on their rules for moderating hate speech. The ADL has a kind of liaison relationship with not just local police, but as I said again, the, the FBI. So that is for the good, and things are very, very different. The threat to Jewish Americans today, it comes from the fringes. It's a marauding assailant who targets Orthodox Jews who dress in kippot and dark suits in places like Borough Park or Jersey City. It's the Palestinian American enraged by the latest war in Israel who goes hunting for Jews at Los Angeles restaurants. The threat is also at times subtle. It comes from progressive activists who demand kind of solidarity with Palestinians that really turns into a litmus test for participating in these progressive groups that you have to show that you are opposed to the existence of a Jewish state. It's also the white supremacists gathering for various rallies chanting Jews will not replace us and claiming that Jewish people operate collectively and endeavor to make whites a national minority. None of these groups, none of these people that I've described here have power in the same way that the state legislators and Bureau of Prison officials and others had that kidnapped and hung Leo Frank in 1915. What I mean to say here is that the people who lynched Leo Frank were very much the establishment of Georgia's society at the time in the 19-teens. They people who threaten Jews today are very much on the fringes. But that doesn't mean they are not a threat. And it's important to notice that these threats are not exclusively coming from the right or the left. And that's an important thing to notice because the ADL has sadly lashed itself too much to one political party, the Democrats. I realize that there are many American Jews that would begin to disagree with me here, and I hear that. There have been a lot of haters who have sort of rallied around Donald Trump and have seen in Donald Trump a kind of tribune for their hateful message. But if you just look at the record, it's not, it doesn't exactly work out. I don't think it's fair to say that Donald Trump is a 21st century version of the evil Thomas Watson. And it's not just because Donald Trump was able to do great things on behalf of the Jewish state, which we should never forget is a safe haven for all of the Jews in diaspora. But it's that, you know, Donald Trump, I think, is very opportunistic. He accepts support from all kinds of groups that I think more normal establishment politicians would not want to necessarily be associated with. But for him, as a raging egotist, the only kind of calculus that matters is that he will support people that support him. But he is not a kind of serious ideologue that has devoted his energies or his career to advancing anti-Semitic tropes that I think all Jews would find threatening. And this is why I believe that it's a mistake for Jonathan Greenblatt to join other groups in urging a boycott of Twitter over the prospect that Trump's account would be reinstated. Indeed, it has been reinstated most recently, I guess, over the weekend. And again, there's plenty to criticize with Trump. You can find remarks that he's made that make everybody cringe. But I would imagine that if you were the leader of an organization like the Anti-Defamation League, it would be worth noting and listening to American Jews that find themselves in support of Donald Trump, 
And among those American Jews, a lot of them are the same Orthodox Jewish communities that have been recently in the crosshairs of for these attacks in New York and the northeast part of the country. Right. The other problem for the ADL is that when the enemies of the Jewish people are marginal and often powerless, and I don't want to say powerless, but they possess a different kind of power than traditional sort of political power, it's difficult to know the line between demanding equal protection and overkill. I mean, let's use an example. Should anti-Semitic shit posters be treated like potential terrorists? Because, you know, I have to say, I have been targets of this kind of stuff, particularly in 2016 and 2017, as a semi, you know, public figure, as a journalist who's known to be Jewish, I, I got some very nasty threats and other kind of images sent to my email that were, were pretty nasty. But I would say that I'm inclined to acknowledge that a lot of that is, you know, it's bad, but I don't know that I want the people who post that to be, you know, watched carefully by the government. I'm inclined to allow some hate speech if it means that there will be more free speech online. I tend to err in the direction of free speech. Plus, if you're really asking for the FBI to kind of monitor the web for potential radicals like this, you're getting very close to asking the FBI to enforce what would effectively be a thought crime. It's certainly true that the FBI will use informants, and they've been doing this for years against white, white supremacists or potential jihadists, in order to make cases to prevent terrorism. And I think have an uneasy consensus about that. But if you crank that up too much, you really are getting the FBI to begin these investigations at a phase where there is no plot at all. And the only evidence is that you've seen kind of an individual online attracted to hateful speech and so forth. So I worry that the ADL is becoming kind of like the Southern Poverty Law Center and other progressive groups that devote their energies to stifling free expansion by expanding the definition of incitement and hate speech to such a degree that it really would be a dragnet for all kinds of speech that I think most people would say is legitimate. The Southern Poverty Law Center and the Anti-Defamation League, it's a similar story. They start off doing the Lord's work. You know, the SPLC helped to bankrupt what was left of the modern Ku Klux Klan. God bless. And they use the legal system well. But after a while... The SPLC realized that its business model was to continue to sort of stoke, you know, to stoke that unease, to stoke that alarm by finding more and more kind of racist groups online. And oftentimes when you sort of look into it, you would find that, yes, these some of these people were deplorable, but there were like four people that would be comprised of a new hate group. And in other cases, when and I think more maligned cases, more so with the Southern Poverty Law Center, have decided to sort of blur the lines and group you know, conservatives that, you know, they disagree with, with really loathsome and toxic racist groups. And that is a a sort of, it's an abuse of their role in the current political discourse as a watchdog against racists to sort of then become partisan in that way. And I sadly see ADL doing the same kind of thing. And finally, I should say that I worry for the younger generation. You know, I'm I'm a Gen Xer, as you all know. But I would hate it if Gen Z Jews in America began to see their own Jewishness as a badge of victimhood and a badge of victimhood alone. You know, we we as Jews should not agree to be part of a rainbow coalition of the oppressed. And the reason for that is that the story of the Jewish people is just so much more than that. And we should demand to understand the story of ourselves, of the Jewish people, for 
for all of its intricacies and majesty and for, for all of its contradictions. And it, we, we should not just be reduced to another kind of box to check of people who have experienced discrimination and oppression historically. Okay, so with that in mind, the trial and lynching of Leo Frank is definitely part of the story of American Jews. In that story, we learn that old hatreds of Europe can still bubble to the surface in the New World. And yet, despite the toxic campaign of bigots like Thomas Watson, the Jews of Atlanta remained and prospered. The Jews of Atlanta, like so many Jews throughout the diaspora, were in the end resilient. The terror of Leo Frank's lynching in the end failed. Let that be a lesson to the haters. Let that be a lesson to anyone that would use violence to intimidate our people, because it won't work. Well, dear listeners, we have a real treat for you today. Leah Leibowitz, one of my favorite writers whose home is at Tablet Magazine, which everybody should read, who has written several books and is a funny and clear, but also just fiercely independent and brave writer, especially when it comes to an issue that's dear to my heart, which is the topic of the show, anti-Semitism and what it means for the Jews in the kind of 2022 America. Liel, thank you so much for coming on The Re-Education. What a pleasure. Life goal achieved. Oh, come on. But this is great to have you here. So I should say that we are we are speaking in the third week of November. It is the 16th. And a few days ago, Dave Chappelle hosted Saturday Night Live and gave what I thought was a hilarious 15-minute monologue on the recent bouts of sort of these meltdowns of Kyrie Irving and Kanye West. And he was soon denounced by Jonathan Greenblatt, the national director of the Anti-Defamation League, which is the sort of premier group in America that's supposed to protect Jews from anti-Semitism and call it out. And we sort of, you know, there was a, I, I don't think it's going to work, but there was a sort of effort by him and others in that orbit to sort of say, oh, you've crossed the line, Dave Chappelle, you're now in the cancelable community or something, and shame on NBC for mainstreaming it. So what do you make of all this? First of all, let's let's appreciate, because you're you're a lover of language, let's appreciate the, the precise wonder of Greenblatt's comment. He tweeted that the fault with what Dave Chappelle had done was that he, and I quote, helped popularize anti-Semitism. Now, 
I, for one, was not aware that anti-Semitism was having any trouble <laughs> finding <laughs> new adherents. I thought it was doing just fine. Yeah. So, okay, you know, beyond the stupidity of this, look, I think this is a topic that deserves to be unpacked, not just for listeners like you and myself who are obsessed with this, but I think there's a really, really good kind of larger message here. The ADL, as you said, used to be a venerable American institution founded in the aftermath of the lynching of Leo Frank in 1915, really for decades and decades helped fight prejudice, not just against Jews, but against, you know, minorities of, of, all, of all walks of, of, of American life. Uh, and in the last 10 or 15 years or so, and this is not a unique story to the ADL, it has been hollowed out and turned into the sort of really kind of, I'd use this word, nefarious organization because it pretends it's still what it used to be. But in reality, it is a kind of slick fundraising slash partisan attack machine that does nothing but claim or play the Jew card, if you will, to say, well, you know, this is how we silence political enemies and claim anti-Semitism. Now, here's a classic example of this organization's perfidy in play. Kyrie Irving, the New Jersey or New York Nets player, a Brooklyn Nets, I should say, player, goes out and says a bunch of really stupid things. Ky Kyrie Irving, who is a lovely young man who believes, among other things, that the earth is flat, uh, I, seriously, this, these are things that he had said before, and that COVID was a plot to connect all Black Americans to a supercomputer in order to control them. So this gentleman, this this thinker, goes out and talks about some book he had read on Amazon or some documentary he had seen that connects Jews to the slave trade and other, you know, popular anti-Semitic canards. Instead of A, taking the time to meet with this person who by all accounts is a very well-meaning and, and open-hearted, earnest individual, or instead of saying, hey, you know what, whatever, man, this is just not something worth dealing with. Here's what the ADL does. First of all, they sell indulgences, just, just like the Catholic Church of old. They say, okay, well, if you pay $500,000, we would put you on the, you know, nice column rather than the naughty column. Then when the NBA commissioner raises doubts over the whole affair, mainly because up until that point, no part of the deal involved Kyrie Irving actually apologizing, the ADL you know, backtracks and said, no, 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 actually, we cannot sell you the indulgence because now it looks too bad in the media. So if you ask me which of these two individuals did more to advance anti-Semitic tropes, the ill-informed basketball player who was just saying stupid nonsense or the head of the ADL who was very, very willing to put the entirety of the kind of Jewish prestige card on the line for half a mil, I think it's a very easy question. I just want to kind of did was this a situation where there was an outrage about the tweet and I know that the NBA was very sensitive to it and that like could it have been just like Kyrie's agent or somebody was like you know what you have a ton of money why don't you give 500,000 to the ADL and by the way the ADL still has culpability here and they just accepted it they they played a role in it right and I think it's worth contrasting this, even if they, that's the most charitable way of looking at it, as opposed to seeking the money in exchange for being on the good list, kind of being a passive participant in this way that like a donation washes away whatever sins. I think it's worth contrasting that to the predecessor to Mr. Greenblatt, Abe Foxman, who you wrote about in your great tablet piece on this, 
who came up as an activist in the organization, born in an IDP camp after the Holocaust, somebody. And we will talk about maybe some of some some legitimate criticisms of Foxman later on in, the, in this conversation. But he is, you know, famous for meeting with Jesse Jackson after the Jaime Town remarks in the 1990, 1984 and after being way too close to Louis Farrakhan. And mm-hmm. it was a real problem because maybe Jesse Jackson wasn't going to win Democratic nomination that year, but he had energized millions of Americans, not just black Americans, progressive Americans in the first serious campaign. Shirley Chisholm was the first African-American who ran in 72, but Jackson had a real kind of campaign. He won states in 84. He was a serious political force. And here he was saying things that were just typical gutter anti-Semitism. And it was hard because there was enormous pressure on the ADL and Foxman to write him off as he deserved to be written off. But instead, Foxman was able to engage Jackson over a period of time without the press there, not for publicity, sir, but to get try to get to know him on a human level. And I am not a Jesse Jackson fan, and he made plenty of mistakes in his career afterwards. All fair. But after the Foxman intervention, every time Jesse Jackson would go before a crowd and talk about civil rights, he would mention the Holocaust. He, what, what I mean to say is that Jackson's heart was changed. Look at that. Talking to a person right. like a normal human being, mind to mind, heart to heart, actually actually achieves something in America. Well, but it gets to a key thing about today and, you know, back then, that's 40 years ago, and then today. And this is what I want to kind of get at, which is that what's the point of the response to celebrity or public anti-Semitism? Is the point to demonstrate the power of the Jewish community, that you will never eat lunch in this town again? Or is the point to say, let me give you a chance to rethink this. These are very poisonous ideas, and in other contexts, they have killed millions. So let me talk to you, because I don't think you're a bad person. I don't think you're evil. And that's a huge difference in approach. And it seems to me that it's the same as, you know, the activists of the LGBTQI plus community. Are you there to bring more people into the into the fold to accept, you know, new kinds of equality? Or are you there to destroy people who have crossed right. a linguistic line? Plus, look, I... I agree with you completely, but I, I think I think this becomes even a little bit clearer when, when you look at it from 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 the other end yeah. of of the equation, right? The main problem that you have when you look at anti-Semitism is that actual real life Jews are getting pummeled yes. in, in their in the streets of their hometowns, right? This is happening in Brooklyn. I don't want to say every day, but it's happening frequently enough for the statistics to to record this as an observable fact. Now. When this happens, what do you do? What, what, what is your go-to move? You would think that a really, really great beginning would be to identify the sources of this violence, to work with local community leaders and politicians to curb it, to stand, very importantly, with the people who are actually being attacked and say, as a Jewish defense organization, I am here to help you. 
The ADL has done none of that. Instead, the ADL has put out a guide two years ago called Naming the Hate. It is a guide to 36 or double high, twice 18 of the most dangerous anti-Semites in America. Every single one of them, of course, are on the right. And most of them have, you know, the most minute and negligible platforms in the dark, filthy corners of the dark web. It never mentions any, say, democratic lawmakers who do not believe Israel has a right to exist. It does not mention any prominent academics or entertainers or rappers or basketball players, anyone with an actual platform, which, as we have seen in in the last couple of, of, of days and weeks, is a really big problem. That's because the operation was never set up to actually address it seriously, to add insult to injury. Jonathan Greenblatt came together with none other than Al Sharpton, America's most prominent living pogromist, who still has not apologized for his role in the Crown Heights riots and, and you know, really inciting the murder of, of a young Hasidic man. He joined together with Al Sharpton in order to advocate that Facebook helped shut down uh, some of Trump's political advertising. What this has to do with the real well-being of any Jews is is really beyond me. So you could be nice and you could give the organization some of the benefit of the doubt. But when you look at the actual uh, at the actions that this particular ADL CEO has taken, uh, you have no choice but to conclude that the primary objectives of the organization under Jonathan Greenbud are a uh, to be a sort of weaponized arm of the Democrat Party, uh, which he's done very well, and B, to raise funds, which he's also done very well because in his short tenure, he's more than, he's nearly doubled the organization's revenue from about $45 million to around $91 million. So by all accounts, his mission is very successful. Too bad it has nothing to do with the real life well-being of any real life Jews. I want to ask, this is a slight tangent, but I think it's related to it. Well, it's not a tangent. I mean, we should say the elephant in the room. The attacks on the rise against mainly Hasidic Jews who are identifiable by their garb and their kippah. Mm-hmm. Correct. Are largely coming from African-American young men. Also correct. Now, that is a hard thing to say in America today. More importantly, there is no ADL statistic that could document what is in front of our face because you just have to go through the headlines and read the news stories about these attacks and it's sadly the case that it's happening and it's also unique i mean for our listeners who are not in new york hasidic communities are in parts of brooklyn that are very close to primarily black neighborhoods and and there is a there's always been this way in new york and you know similar i guess for jersey city where this has happened as well but i i want to sort of dig deep down into that which is we don't really know much about whether there is a connection between let's take a, a rapper who I actually like jay electronica who has armin rosen of pablo has written about him who has said who has endorsed inc- super anti-semitic stuff i think he's what's what's the line the rothschilds don't want me making a dollar the church of satan hangs me by the collar yeah, something, something like, like that. that it's it's gross and yet i mean Jay Electronica has, has put out some stone-cold classics. And by the way, as he's rapping this, you know who's standing right there behind him on this very track and seven other tracks in this recent album, spewing all this shit, is Jay-Z. Well, Jay-Z's uh, standing next to him. Jay-Z does not right. say it, like these kinds of things. Right, but okay. 
Correct. But but unlike Kanye, you know, he's received absolutely no criticism because, well, you know, he's one of us. He's our camp. Kanye crossed the line, so he's fair game. It's just so gross. Yeah. Well, I mean, I did a whole thing on Kanye and we can talk about that, too. But here's my question, though, which I want to get at as a deeper thing. Is there a connection between, you know, people with cultural platforms putting this stuff kind of into the water supply, so to speak, or cultural water? And then these attacks, or can this perhaps be explained by a, the a rise in mental illness, a rise in 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 undiagnosed, you know, mania? And I don't know the answer to that because I am very wary of attributing or or explaining violence in the real world to something that is kind of a cultural product because it gets very close to a situation where you can start justifying censorship on the grounds right. that, and that is, by the way, what my adversaries in other spaces do all the time. Certain speech is violence, according to them, and therefore we have an obligation to make sure that you're deplatformed or your distribution is throttled or whatever the latest euphemism is. It's, a, it's an excuse for censorship. So how do we deal with that, Leo? Because I know you have the same small L liberal concerns about these things that I do. I, first of all, I, I think I think yeah, I think the analysis that you offer here is 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 brilliant and correct. I think if you really want to understand this rise in in anti-Semitic attacks, I think it's it's not either or. I think it's yes and. Okay. Uh, on the one hand, you have a political culture that that looks at at America as a gaggle of protected classes, which are now locked in a never ending struggle for for resources, primacy, and more rights to be closer to to the seat of power, which is a really toxic and, and horrible way to look at America rather than as a quote unquote super tribe of of distinct minorities and ethnicities coming together for a greater cause as a, a gaggle of, of warring groups, each accusing the other suspiciously of, of exercising undue power and influence. So you have this absolute toxic ideology, which sometimes calls itself progressive, although it has, of course, nothing to do with, with anything uh, denoting real progress. On the other hand, you have a cultural technological landscape in which people are increasingly atomized, in which human connection is replaced by gawking at screens all yep. day long, which eco chambers online are, are, as we know, radicalizing, especially young people, to believe that reality is far more dire than they think and that actions ought to be equally as, as, as swift and vengeful. Uh, and combine these two together, and it's really no surprise that some young people would just choose to go out there and think that if they, you know, whack a Jew on the head, there will be absolutely no consequences. And it's also not a coincidence that this comes down to the Jews because it always comes down to the Jews. We are, if you look at, if you look at the game, even on its own terms, the Jews have already lost because in this kind of a new world order that the progressive left has, uh, has wrought, we are somehow codified as whites, which of course is the, the absolute biggest and sickest joke except uh, nothing could be we're minorities when somebody who's mildly on the right says something that might be construed as anti-semitic 
then we must be protected. Correct. At that point, we're useful and the yeah, card yeah. must be played. But in any other occasion, we can quote unquote pass his wife as if you would ever tell a, a homosexual gentleman that he should not complain because he could always kiss a woman and pass as straight. It's just so revolting. But when you combine, you know, this 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 political ideology with this cultural, technological, atomized reality, you would find that the Jews are the losers. Well, I think there is something to that. But what I want to say is, and I, and I don't mean to, but I'm saying if you go back, and I know you've read this, and I'm sure our, many of our listeners have seen this kind of thing, you know, read about the propaganda against the Jews in the Third Reich. It was systematic. It was far more than this or that celebrity saying something and then having most people gasp. It was, there were, there were state songs that denigrated Jews. There were lots of deliberate things that were done to yes. make the Jews into the other, even though, you know, Jews had served in the military in World War I for Germany, were integrated up and down German society. There was a systematic effort by the Nazi party to emit a kind of mind poison that turned, that allowed for Germans to allow the mass slaughter of Jews. That is something that is not happening in America. Correct. But yes. too often, the specter of something that horrible, which we should never forget, of course, is used in the kind of way to create an emotional blackmail to support this other kind of policy position, whether it's online censorship, whatever it is. And I and and to me that is important to just re always remember the kind of singularity of the Holocaust and the Shoah, and not to to cavalierly 100%. compare. You know, and that's that's just another point I wanted to try to get in there. A hundred percent, which is which is look, which is why yeah. I, I am so particularly not just offended, but but frankly grossed yeah. out by how quick we are to just say, oh, fascism, Jack Buddha yes, thugs, yes. just like the Nazis, another Hitler. Not only is that nonsense, but it also it, it disarms us of a pretty significant moral and intellectual tool. By the way, it's which, why I don't like it when non-Jews call themselves a diaspora. It's why I don't right. I don't like it when we hear exaggerations about <clears throat> and obviously black we both know understand the black the, the, the story of blacks in America is a tragic one of you know kidnapping and slavery we all know this but today it is not equivalent of living under holocaust like conditions but there are people who will get away with that kind of distortion and hyperbole because it does have this emotional valiance it does have this kind of triggering effect that, that that's exactly right which is which is why i am i am so firmly in agreement with yeah. you first of all because i also found you know the the monologue dave Chappelle's monologue hilarious yeah we, we also, both thought it was hilarious that, right that that the real kind of the, the the best antidote to as as we say in the edition this nourish kite to this nonsense is with with strong robust clarifying even if sometimes offensive or uncomfortable speech otherwise you're in very murky territory because the question of well, who gets to decide what inflicts harm and and what must be what 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 must be censored is is never a question that has any good answers. Now that's right. I want to explore one more thing that's related to this, which there really is a rise in anti-Semitic violence in America. For sure, it's a real problem, and it affects, by the way, 
the Hasidic community. And we should say the Hasidic community is often not treated as a part of the broader Jewish community by some of our national organizations. Now, I, I, I think the Conference of Presidents of Major Jewish Organizations certainly acknowledges this, but there is a tendency among more assimilated Jews to almost not consider these Hasidic Jews to be part of us. And that's a mistake, in my view. Yeah, just before, just before, yeah. just before, just before COVID, there was a real kind of uptick in in very shocking, very violent attacks against Hasidim in Brooklyn. So much so that the community, the communal organizations, I should say, were, were pressured into holding a rally, which is a which is a really kind of unlikely right. step. Here's here's what they did: they organized a rally. The rally went. No, it was a whole march. It was a march from City Hall to a to a park, a small park right under the Brooklyn Bridge. It went nowhere near the actual neighborhood oh. where any of these actually took place. And it invited out of the twenty speakers or so that day, there may be one or two representatives of the community. The rest were people who had not even bothered checking in on the community, who had never come in and 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 spent any time. And and and, and most infuriating who refused to use even, even an iota of their political clout with City Hall to actually exert any real pressure. That, that is part, I think, of, of the problem. Internally, many of us, sadly, especially uh, liberal Jews in good standing, have internalized the, the call that's coming from the left, which is you must choose between being a good liberal, being a good progressive, being a good Democrat, and being a good Jew. If you are too persnickety about the needs of your quote unquote tribe. If you say, hey, I don't think it's okay that, you know, some some young black people in Brooklyn could attack some young Jewish people in Brooklyn. And this seems to happen again and again and again and again. And when we bring it up, we hear things like, well, you know, systemic racism. Well, you know, the injustice of the incarceration system. Well, you know, cash bail. Well, you know, drugs. Well, you know, et cetera, et cetera. The fact that we can't have this debate openly and honestly without immediately being accused of some kind of white privilege and or racism is deeply indicative. I think it has done tremendous damage to to many in the Jewish community. And that's part of what we're fighting. Here. And I will borrow this. I want to credit this to Alana Newhouse, the editor of Tablet and a friend of both of ours. But one of the things that she said to me is that she really liked, I mean, we. I think everybody agrees. I mean, Chappelle's a genius. In my view, he's like, you know, he's like the Ameri he's like the 21st century Mark Twain. But, you know, he could have put something in there about this thing that's happening in, his, in the black community. He could have referenced that. If he's going to talk about this topic, he could have gone there and he didn't. And it doesn't mean that the rest of the set wasn't funny. It doesn't mean that I think Chappelle should be canceled or that he committed some, you know, hate crime or something. I I don't think that's what Alana was saying, but I'm saying that if, if you're going to be the truth teller, tell all the truth. I think that's really right. Yeah. And I think it's really She's smart. Obviously, something something that, that that I would love to see, too. On the other hand, you know, like I, I, I try to look at it. And, and as, as you noted, that was not the only thing that he kind of messed up in, in the set. He also, you know, had this truly horrible joke about uh, horrible, both in sense of not being funny and not being true. About Russiagate. Oh yeah, yeah, I hated that one too. That, whatever. You know, Trump was indeed a Russian agent, whatever. But but I think if you try to look at it from 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 his perspective, right, and and you see a landscape 
in which the moment someone says something that is that is that is out there or problematic, as as he said in a very funny joke, it's not a crazy thing to think, it's just a crazy thing to say out loud. The immediate response is cancellation and and contractual trouble yeah, and, he, and loss and, of and he income. proves that the response proves his point. Correct. It's so gross. Like, why is that your first response? Like, well, we must pressure Nike to drop this, and Ugh. we must talk to Adidas to do that. It's it's really. I mean, it goes such a long way to basically establish the worst, most sinister, unfounded fears that that you really kind of at some point have to wonder, like, are we doing more damage than good by immediately going to the mattress rather than having a more, as you said in the, in the beginning, a more kind of community and, and dialogue-based approach here. Yeah. I want to touch on one other thing, and this is a total third rail, but you know what, Leo, you're a truth teller, and I know you can handle it, is perhaps the once one, one response to the rise of physical anti-Semitic violence against Orthodox Jews in and around New York to be investing in self-defense programs for Jews or perhaps even firearm ownership in a... Oh. What? My friend, I believe every Jewish man, woman, and child, and I say this very deliberately, ought to carry weapons at all times and know precisely how to use them. In fact, I think not to do so is madness. And increasingly, I think living in, in, in cities or, or states that make doing so very difficult is physically detrimental to, to the physical health and safety of, of, of real Jews. Sadly, we have reached that point in, in the American story. I hope it's a transient one. But at this point, if you're Jewish and, and, not, and, and still without the means to defend yourself, hopefully or preferably, with a firearm, I think you're delusional. Okay, but let me steal man it just for a second and take the other side of my argument as a good Jew will. Correct. You, I think you should, I think that, I, I kind of think it's a good idea, but you also have to assert that Jewish community has as equal a right to the protection of the police and the state as anyone else. It's no longer the case that in France, where the police will not go into certain kinds of Muslim neighborhoods where there are known to be radical terrorists that are looking to commit violence against Jews. But it took the murder of Jewish people in France for that policy to change. And if you think about it, if the Jewish community in France, instead of saying, we're going to demand that the state protect us the way they would protect any other French citizen had said, okay, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to open our synagogues up, you know, on Sunday afternoons and we're all going to learn Krav Maga. I just, I, there's an argument there that you do never want to, if you're living in diaspora, if you're a Jew living abroad and not in Israel, you still must demand the same equal protections and rights as any other citizen in that country. That's a very important principle. Intellectually, you're absolutely right, but I am a ninth generation Israeli. I was born in Tel Aviv. And as a, as a deeply committed Zionism, I take, as a deeply committed Zionist, I take the lesson of Zionism to be that while you should demand these protections. You can't count on uh, it. 
you should never ever count on it, even even a little bit. And look, I, I live in New York City. I see what has been done to totally defang and demoralize and disable right. the police force here. I don't think the police are, you know, biased in any way. I think they're they're overwhelmed, understaffed, underappreciated, and underpaid. And I think in a reality like this, to sit and make demands while physical attacks happen uh, is folly. Plus, I think it does something really corrosive to a people's soul mm. uh, if, if you continue to live and cower in fear. And, and this is what I don't like. And look, I, I want to be very careful because I understand the instinct here and I understand that pe the people doing this are, are well-meaning people. But so many Jewish communities have spent tens of millions of dollars on you know hiring physical safety experts yeah. to conquer their, their communities. As far as I'm concerned, every synagogue should have its doors wide open. But anyone walking in should know that in the congregation, there are three or four or five people in whose tallest bags there's a loaded Glock ready for action. And if you come to mess with us, it will be the shortest day of your life. Oh, Beitar, Beitar, Beitar. You know? Okay, I just want to that, say this is a perfect time to just normal. point out. Normal. As the, great, normal. as the great Menachem Begin, who we will do a full re-education episode on soon, <laughs> said one of my favorite quotes from him. There is no such thing in this world as a guarantee of a guarantee. That's right. And, you know, you make a very compelling point. That said, there are centuries of precedent of Jews living in diaspora. And it, we have to demand that we are, we are as American as anybody of these, uh, any, uh, anyone else. There isn't a special reason why Orthodox Jews in Barrow Park should have to live in fear from their neighbors that's that's exactly right but look everything everything ab yeah. about that and, and i i i want to go back to the discourse here to, to use a favorite academic <laughs> term everything about the discourse enables this here's a classic example yeah. so two black israelites i think a year or two ago walk into a a kosher store in new jersey and shoot several people dead right yes the new york literally in the first report of that incident, in the fourth or fifth paragraph, wrote something like, well, of course, among the most prevalent explanations for this crime, uh, and, and I'm paraphrasing here very, very loosely, but, but the, you know, the, the gist of it is true, is the fact that these, you know, these Jews have gentrified the neighborhood. And, oh, you know, Jesus, really? Of, yeah. uh, right, but, but, this is, but this is how, this is how the, the sort of the perceived wisdom looks at all these encounters. So you're asking why there are so many attacks, because if any time you go to a school or read a newspaper or engage with serious culture anywhere that our self-appointed, you know, intellectual and moral betters are in charge, you hear the same story of perpetual victimhood for black Americans perpetrated by, by wealthy white people of whom the Jews are somehow emblematic and we don't call them the Jews. Sometimes we call them Israel for convenience. By the way, sake, we right? can acknowledge That's... that there is historically racism, of course, against black community. But there is a problem with police and blacks, and it's not it's not one or the other. You can you can agree that like fact, you're fact, right, like there are a lot what... of problems here, but that doesn't excuse or explain away or why we should be embarrassed to notice that it's black men who are who are assaulting Orthodox Jews. It a hundred. Look, yeah. I, th I think you have to completely, completely blind and or deeply bigoted yes. to claim that there is not systemic racism alive and well in America 
doing horrendous things to keep, you know, young black men and women and old black men and women of that for that down in, in, in horrendous and unfair ways. And that the likelihood of you suffering real bodily harm as as a black American is far, far greater than it is for me walking down the streets of Manhattan. However, if you really want to move forward, I think a very good idea always is to acknowledge actual facts and not, you know, kind of like mystical, mythical, political narratives and start addressing things. And, and a great way to do so, by the way, is by demanding and facilitating actual good relationships of, 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 of neighbors within the same neighborhood, rather than the second someone moves into a neighborhood, say like, oh, well, that's gentrification and we don't like that. Yeah. It's just... Well, and, and I mean, I, I believe that blacks and Jews are natural allies as communities. So do I. And it's not, there's no perfect history here. Like there, you can you can pull out examples of things that are very bad, but for the most part, the Jewish community in America has been very attuned to the civil rights struggle, and they have played a part of it from the very beginning. So there's another side of it too, and there's you know all kinds of other things, but. In my view, it's it's a, it, that incidents, getting back to sort of full circle of Kyrie or Kanye, things like that, are these kind of distractions from what should be a kind of natural fraternity between the two communities. But but here, look, this is this is such a great you know teaching moment. Yeah. Look at the history of the civil rights movement, right? You look at the language of the greatest leaders of the civil rights movement. Here you have Sojourner Truth in in the mob, the famous mob convention when. She, stares down a whole room filled with, you know, white supremacist bigots who physically want to harm her. She says to them, I am Esther and I'm here to save my people. You hear Frederick Douglass, he's speaking yes. the of the prophets of Israel. You hear any civil rights leader from Martin Luther King Jr. who says, I've been to the mountaintop. Which mountaintop is he talking about? Sinai. To Barack Obama talking about the Joshua generation. All these men and women who we admire rightly have spoken this language because they were rooted deeply in the moral language of the Hebrew Bible, which is my friend, Rabbi Ari Lamb, likes to say is every bit Our America's friend. faith. And, and, and your Ari's friend, Ari's a dear right? friend. He's, he's uh, wonderful. He's been on the show. Is, is every, every bit America's, the Hebrew Bible is every bit America's founding moral document as a constitution is our founding political document. The problem is, that this new ideology, which you could call a replacement theology, or you could call some kind of, of bad religion, actually rejects these very premises. This is an ideology, what, what we see on the left today is an ideology that very insistently looks at the color of someone's skin rather than the content of someone's character. It is, it is an ideology that rejects this biblical framework and instead demands never-ending struggle between supposed oppressed mm. groups and, and, and other groups. That's the problem. We already have a shared framework for blacks and Jews to fight oppression, improve society, and improve relationship between them. And it's been working very, very, very well until that premise was rejected. And, and again, mostly I, I would observe, not necessarily rejected by, by, actual, by any actual black Americans, but rejected by you know, overeducated white Americans who decided that this is now the path to quote-unquote social justice. Well, I want to end on something that's re it's very much related to what you just said, and that was brilliantly stated. And that is something that just came up in the news, which is that we learned a couple days ago that the FBI has launched an investigation <laughs> into the tragic killing of 
an Al Jazeera reporter who was an American citizen. The the Israel Defense Forces in, investigated. Initially, they believed that she was caught in a kind of crossfire in a military operation between Palestinian militants and Israeli soldiers. And it was an Israeli bullet that likely killed her. It's a terrible tragedy. The U.S. State Department accepted the results of the Israeli investigation. And here is this new investigation. Now, I want to make something very clear. I don't think this was done by the Biden White House, by the way. I don't think this was a political move to screw Bibi. I think it is more a reflection, this is based on some of my own reporting on this, of how rotten the FBI is today. And that combine that with pressure from progressives in Congress. But this is getting to the point. Progressives believe that Israel is an illegitimate state. It's an apartheid state. It is a racist state. It is an anti-democratic state. That Israel is bad. And progressives also believe that Jews are part of their rainbow coalition of the oppressed. And what they are asking Jews in diaspora and American Jews to do is to reject Israel and accept the protection of the intersectional woke progressive elites. And that to me is both historically illiterate and any Jew who goes along with it needs to go get a remedial education and listen to the re-education. But it is also deeply offensive to me because Israel is our safe haven. Israel is a is a state that was created obviously by Zionists before the Shoah, but it comes into being after the Shoah because there is an understanding among world Jewry that we cannot trust our safety and survival to even a great nation like America, which has been very good to the Jews. That we need our own state now, in order to survive. Let me let me let me let me let me riff off yeah. that. Let's assume I agree with you, obviously, a hundred percent. Let's assume that nothing. Let's assume I believe nothing you just said. Yeah. Let's assume that I did not think anything you just said was true. Let's assume that I approach the situation with all the kind of benefit of the doubt and 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 open heartedness that I could muster, and said, okay, well, I would like to be part of this beautiful coalition of 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 hashtag you know hope and change. And I'm very ready to do whatever it takes to join my my oppressed brethren and sisters in, in the fight for justice. Here you have this case. An American-born Palestinian reporter is caught in the crossfire. Israeli army investigates, finds most likely she was caught in the crossfire and, and shot by an Israeli soldier, you know, inadvertently. Now, the FBI decides to start an investigation. As our dear friend Lavorkov reports in the Jerusalem. There have, there have been at least 49 cases of American citizens slaughtered by deliberate Palestinian terrorism, including Malki Roth, who was slaughtered by an attack on a pizza shop where she was sitting a, as a young woman. I'm, I'm correct, right? Yeah. That was the Svara. Just enjoying herself and, and a terrorist blow, you know, blew, blew himself up. The person responsible for that attack, Ahlam Ahmed al-Tamimi, is alive and well. She's on the FBI's most wanted terrorist list. She's in Jordan. To date, the administration has done absolutely nothing, and Lav writes about this beautiful. Right. Neither, uh, did, to... neither did the Trump administration, neither right. did the uh, Obama so administration, now, so and neither did the George W. Bush administration. Should make that very Correct. clear. Now, 
that's that's very true. But if you want to know where you fit in the Rainbow Coalition, this case, this recent case of the FBI investigating, is all you need to know. Because 50 dead Jews, 50 dead American Jews, at dead at the hands or slaughtered at the end of Palestinian terrorism, never merited a single investigation. One dead Palestinian woman caught in the crossfire with an investigation already going on and praised, by the way, by the American administration, and the FBI steps into action. If you want to know what they think of you, here's proof. But this is my, I, I, I just want to be careful on one point. Who is the they? Now, I can say who some of the they's are. It's, you know, what's her name, Rashida Tlaib, who's been making this a major issue. It's also members of the Democratic Party that I, I'm sadly disappointed have joined in, like Senator Chris Van Allen. Mm -hmm. Even Senator Mitt Romney, a Republican, has signed a letter on this point which is uh, just inexplicable, gobsmacked about that. So there are members of Congress who want this. And there is a culture at the FBI where it's pretty obvious to me that there are so few restrictions. You can launch an investigation into whatever you want, and there are unbelievable things that you can do with very little oversight at all in the course of that investigation. You can send an informant against somebody without going to the Justice Department or even maybe even a supervisor. You know, that's how lax it is after 9-11. Correct. Which it needs to change. And and your piece, by the way, in, in this issue of commentary is so oh, thank you. and wide reading on this very oh, subject. We, and we will be doing an FBI super episode soon, everybody, with an excellent guest. You'll be learning more about that soon. But anyway, my point here is that we just have to be very careful because I would imagine... I'm not prepared really to report this, but we're having a conversation. My hunch is based on people I've spoken to who have given me some informed speculation is that this FBI thing caught the White House unawares and that there are members of the Democratic Party who understand how utterly poisonous what this, having an FBI investigation, let alone everything you just said, Liel, it also says we don't think Israel is a legitimate country that can conduct its own investigations. That's the, I mean, that's a, that's a horrible, it's like, what? But, but now, but now you're giving, you're basically setting up two choices. Yeah. Either the White House did not know of this and therefore is not really in control of what is an unprecedented foreign policy, you know, flex, as the kids say, against a major ally, or the White House did know about this, at which point this is just kind of a, a pernicious move. Well, so no, no, wait, I... You, you, I, I you could claim malice, but uh, the I would, no, no, very briefly, as you know, there's a post Watergate standard where the White House is never supposed to talk about any ongoing investigation with the FBI. And that was done because obviously Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon were tried to, you know, politicize the institution. It was politicized against Trump. And remember, one of the when Comey was fired and he leaked his notes, what 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 his notes said, the president asked me to take it easy on Mike Flynn, and that was seen as oh my God, we have the independence of the FBI is threatened. So I'm just saying that it's it doesn't necessarily mean that they're allowing it to happen. There's a deliberate policy that the FBI. That's I mean by the way, that's one of the problems right now. The FBI is out of control. It could use more White House oversight. 
I, I think this opens the door to a much, much larger conversation about the, the, the connections between, you know, law enforcement, intelligence and, and political players. I, no, I, uh, and I know where you're going with that. And you're generally right. What I'm saying is I have reason to believe that it's not everybody in the Democratic Party right now that takes this view that this is somehow OK. You know what I'm saying? There's still holdouts. I'm not, and, and I, I'm not a softy for the Dems. For sure. But if you're asking me to bet whether or not this is still a party in which, you know, Jews who care about their own safety and well-being and who care about the, the survival of the state of Israel can find a comfortable, welcoming home, sadly, and I'm not much of a fan of the Republican Party either. This is, this is a statement of political homelessness. But sadly, I say that the answer is no. I think both parties right now are plagued by by deeply troubling elements we can debate and it's, i think it's an interesting and informative debate which one has has yeah. a sort of a, a better greener pasture for jews but this is just another reminder that that jews ought to completely disengage from this partisan game of like oh well i stand as a democrat because that promotes my interest the only thing that promotes your interest as a jew is being jewish yes and it's also important for our community to say, even if I disagreed with the Hasidic family that voted for Trump, they're still Jews. They're still part of the Jewish community. I cannot pretend that if they're under attack, it doesn't affect me. And unfortunately, that's what terrifies me the most. When I see young Jews on campus so quick to join anti-Israel organizations, and to adopt this kind of progressive persona and then insist that they're doing it is because they're Jewish progressives. And then they say, no, my progressive values actually come from the Jewish tradition and they can, you know, gerrymander and pick and cherry pick, you know, various right. parts of the Talmud and the Torah or whatever to support whatever they want to say. I'm like, no, we're all one community. And by the way, we're all going to disagree. We have disagreed many times as a community historically. It's fine. But you got to recognize that you cannot insulate yourself and pretend that when one part of our community is under attack, the Hasidic Jews of New York, that it, it, it doesn't rank for you and that it's okay for the ADL to have a 36-person a, a list of, of right-wing cranks that doesn't ever get to that problem. That's so true, but, but you know, I'm, I'm going to yes and you I, on right, this one. I love I, it. I think it actually goes deeper than that. And I think you saw it a little bit in that recent massive New York Times report about the state of Hasidic education. Yeah, I saw that, right? yes. For those, of our, for those of your listeners who, who are not aware of this, this is a, I don't know, 138,000 million words of, about how Hasidic communities are really sort of condemning mainly their sons, but also their daughters to a lifelong of ignorance because they do not teach them sufficient to math, English, and other, other life skills. Never mind that in this entire bazillion word piece, not a single current parent of any of these communities was actually interviewed to say, hey, this is why I actually really like, you know, my kid's school. Never mind all that. Uh, it came down to two very basic arguments. First of all, that it was deeply not okay for a minority community not to be proficient in English. And second of all, that a very good mark of measuring success and, and aptitude in society at large were the standardized testing offered by the city and the state. Now, if you applied any of these arguments to 
any other minority group. If you said, I'm very troubled by the fact that so many communities of immigrants from Guatemala right. don't English or, hey, I think that there is a big problem with that, that the African-American community in New York City constantly fails standardized tests, you would immediately find yourself not just outside the progressive camp, but accused of the most kind of vile and insensitive forms of racism, because these are two of the most kind of profound principles of faith progressive have set up to say like, well, no, multilingualism is fine. And no, you know, standardized testing is deeply problematic because it has inherent kind of cultural assumptions and values that not all, you know, groups share, et cetera, et cetera. The fact that these very things could be turned around and used as weapons against Jews and no one thinks to bat an eyelash and be like, not only is that not, you know, consistent with the values of Jewish people, it's not even rationally and logically consistent with our own belief system. It's just mind boggling to me. And when you see gaps like this and you see deltas like this, you say, well, then, then there is an agenda. Can I ask a question? Because I, first of all, you wrote something on this for Tablet and you were wonderful on the commentary podcast when this came out. I followed it very closely. But just what if that that research project, what if that you know journalism had been done by, I don't know, JNS or for that matter, Tablet or I don't want to say the forward because the forward is in a weird spot right now. But if it was done by a Jewish newspaper and it was literally just, this is my community and I really wish our schools were better. I mean, at least I would say, if that was the case, I would say, great, you know, I mean, you know, that's that's what you expect. That's journalism. The fact that mm -hmm. it's the Times and there's a double standard that you've just pointed out is what but makes not, it such a problem. Right, but it's not just that because if 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 someone had done it, let, let's say you know I'm I'm trying because as as a Jewish journalist, right. right? I'm trying like doing this thing. So I would go and I would say, okay, look, first of all, if you actually know what these kids learn in in the yeshivas, you understand, and I think I write uh, about this a little bit in, in in my own piece, but you understand that some you know in order to truly study the Talmud, for right. example, some demand a fairly intricate understanding of, you know, geometry, trigonometry, like all kinds of, of, of mathematical concepts that are just necessary to make some calculations without which you actually cannot understand a word of what the Talmud is saying. So first of all, you would have had some kind of insight to what these people are actually learning. Second of all, as you said, you would have approached the situation by, by actually speaking to some of these people and asking the, the most, I think, basic question that is, that is absent from the Times reporting, reporting which is, Okay, well, if it's so bad, why do, you know, hundreds of thousands of parents or, you know, tens of thousands of parents send their kids to these schools? What is it about these institutions that does something well? Can we maybe emulate that or try at least not to hurt that as we're reforming these schools? That none of this was present really is deeply troubling. And I think there's definitely a way to make this, to, to report the same question and have the same conversation from a very different standpoint. But again, that was not the interest. And now all we have are two entrenched camps. That's a very fair point, which is that it didn't, it, it, the piece, it wasn't just that the piece was kind of poking at something that sort of, you know, it wouldn't poke at for other communities. It was that it didn't understand what yeshiva education is about and what it's trying to do. And, and by the way, look, look at, look at, there's now a surge of shows about Hasidim on TV, right? There's Unorthodox, the horrible Netflix show, not the great podcast. A great podcast, I'm part. by the way. 
There is a, there's the, you know, my unorthodox life, the reality show. All of these shows depict Hasidic life as, as basically one long Marines hazing ritual right. of, of abuse and cruelty. There is no warmth. And as someone who, who knows this community very well, it is, it is, they might as well be describing people on Mars. Like it is so far from the actual lived in realities of real Jews that, that you just kind of stop and think like, well, these people don't actually want to engage or explore right. or, or, or or tell stories. They, they, this is just propaganda. You know, that's, that's a, you make a, a very good point. I'm going to put you on the spot for my last question. Have you seen Ari Shafir's special on YouTube, Jew? Just came out. No. Do you I, know Ari Shafir, the comic? Yes, sure. Very good. I, he, he pushes the boundaries a little bit, but it's very good, I think. The title itself is worth the price. It's of it. not what she's necessarily. He doesn't because he knows it. He's, he he was a former. He studied Yeshiva. He grew up Hasidic. So it's a very. It's a really interesting thing, and at times it's uproarious. So I I would recommend that. I would okay. love to do it. I mean, and I hope I'm not wrong, man. You 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 know, Lil, you might you might see it and you'd be like, yeah, I can't believe you missed this like obvious bullshit here. No, 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 no. Anyway. But I think it's again. As, I don't care what it is that you say, as long as you're a good comic. Yeah, that's, which a, that's is exactly thing, right. Just be funny. Funny. <laughs> All right. Well, this was great, Liel. Thank you so much. I loved it. What a pleasure. Okay. This has been the Reeducation with Eli Lake, a Nebulous production. Please find us wherever you find your podcast, and if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five star review. It helps other people find the show and makes us feel really good about what we're doing. Thank you.